and welcome to Literary Merit, the show where we tell you what media has value. Spoiler alert, it's all of it. Also, spoiler alert, we'll be discussing spoilers as usual, so here's your warning. I'm Ashley. And I'm Alex. And I'll start by asking, what is new to you, Alex? Uh, I had a busy week at work, uh, five days in a row, and my brain was just shutting down the last two days and it wasn't fun. But then I, I know. because of that, I had yesterday off in addition to today. So I have two days in a row, which is pretty uncommon, uh, unless it's a holiday, <laughs> which was last week. Yeah, I, I was like, what? You got, you got another whole weekend? What? Right? Um, so yesterday I went to Vancouver Pride. Oh, good. You did go. Just because I, I wasn't, I didn't like make a whole thing of it. I was already going to downtown Vancouver for my um, monthly writing workshop. So I just mm-hmm. went like 45 minutes early and walked around the park. Um, it was co- nice. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's I know, very I know. It's just like, it's just fun. It's just like a nice little day in the park with gay people. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it may <laughs> with day people. No, gay people. Oh, <laughs> day people. Day people, it, I was with... like, as opposed to night people. Yeah, well, no, they're the day gays. They're the day. Oh, you're you're so true. You're so right, though. Like exactly the daytime that. gays. Um, but it was kind of like melancholy because you know walking around by myself, and I was just mm. like, I, I had this realization that I really want to be involved, and and to like have the that sort of involvement to be able to do pride and stuff like that. Right. But then also how uncomfortable it is to just, like, not feel like, I don't know, it felt like I wasn't really there there, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can imagine know. it would have felt different if you'd like, gone with friends or something. Oh, exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Part of it, I think, is just being like, I'm by myself in this place where everyone is not by themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So that was nice just to sort of walk around in the sun. Mm-hmm. And then I had my writing workshop, which was really good. And we actually, I actually ended up writing a lot of pride stuff. Yay. Um, so all was not for not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then uh, we were going to record yesterday, but I couldn't find a, a good spot because my parents were off doing something. Yeah. So, and then that evening there was, so all week there were a bunch of, um, poetry uh seminars and readings uh, at reed college um put on by uh, tin house books which is a nice portland-based publisher of poetry um and i wanted to go to like every single night but obviously when you work until six and you're completely dead tired and then the events at eight (laughs) (laughs) yeah like yeah that's a lot. So I only managed to go to yesterday's, but it was the one I would, like, the the one I was like, you cannot miss this. Um, and that was the the one, it, one of the featured readers was Denise Smith, who I've talked about their poetry a lot on here. Um, and Allie, friend of the show, my mm-hmm. best friend and former co- what what one or two episode co-host. Yeah. Um, <laughs> former guest, show guest. guest. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Um, she was like, you have to get me a copy of the book and get them to sign it. So I did. And so it was really nice. I got to meet Denez and that was, that was good. Oh, that's nice. And it was very uncomfortable. Not anything to do with the people, but it was an outdoor amphitheater at Reed College with wooden, like, 
stadium seats Oof. and it was so uncomfortable. Oh no. Thank goodness all of the readers were exceptional and engaging because otherwise I would have been in pain and bored the whole time. <laughs> well, that's nice. And what about you? Uh, I had some, some eventful times. Um, last week was um, Dara's 11th birthday. And so we all went out to Family Fun Center, um, which is like a two-minute drive from my apartment. So that was very convenient for us. Is that is that Bullwinkle's Family Fun Center? Yes. Yes, Bullwinkle's. to mention that to all of our wonderful listeners. <laughs> well, yes. Well, see, the thing is, though, I, I say Family Fun Center because Bullwinkle's is the name of the restaurant. Family Fun Center is the name of the arcade. Really? So, okay. Yes, it's Bullwinkle's restaurant. They're remodeling, though. Uh, <laughs> they had to sign up, like, pardon our dust. And I was like, where? But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, apparently they're going to remodel the whole restaurant. And they're going to add in a full bar. <laughs> because there's only oh, so much you can ask of parents at Family Fun Center. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're putting well, in a bowling that'll, lane. That'll, like, engage the millennials to come back for their nostalgia while they're drunk. Yeah, it's going to be great. No, it's about due for an upgrade, I think. It's been exactly the same since, basically, as long as I can remember. And I've been going to Family Fun Center since I was, like, five. Do they still have the really, really amazing bumper boats? They do have the bumper boats. No one was doing them when I was there. Those are the literally best bumper boats in the whole world because they have squirt guns on them. They have squirt guns, and they're really fast. Yeah, and they're, like, like, they're... Like, that's the definite highlight, that and the the mini golf, because the go-karts, I got yelled at by the person running the go-karts, so I have (laughs) shame associated with go-karts, so uh, I'm all up the bumper boats. Yeah, no one was uh, riding them when I was there. Oh, that uh, would be so nice on a hot day like today, those bumper boats. It would be. Um, It was pretty hot that day, too. Uh, But we uh, we did go, though, to the Bullwinkle's restaurant, have pizza, and um, God the animatronic show is terrible. Like it's sk- <laughs> so bad and scary and broken. Like I'm so glad that they're fixing. We need they're, to like, do a live show stuff. from the animatronic show. It's like it's. I mean, it's like no wonder Five Nights at Freddy's is a thing because this is terrifying. Because <laughs> you've got Rocky and Bullwinkle up there uh-huh. on the stage with their little instruments, and okay, first of all, like no children know who Rocky and Bullwinkle are. Like no, but like. They don't know. Like, Dara had no idea who these guys were. In fact, Dylan's uh, Dylan's new girlfriend, she's, like, Dylan's age. And uh-huh. she had no idea. She'd never heard of Rocky and Bullwinkle. And it's, like, <laughs> well, she's in her 20s. I, and I'm like, what? The only reason I really have a fondness for Rocky and Bullwinkle is because I had a sleep disorder as a child and would often be watching tv in the middle of the night to distract myself from it and that was always when rocky and bullwinkle was on <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and like i will i've not watched much rocky and bullwinkle but like this is not a cultural touchstone anymore like this is not like they know children know who these guys are and these animatronics are really bad um because above the stage you've got like sort of a weird totem pole situation that has Boris and Natasha on it. Oh, and God. they're broken. Boris's mouth just sort of hangs open. Like, it doesn't move anymore. Oh, no. <laughs> when he talks, it just kind of hangs there. Like, his jaw is just like, nah. And then Natasha, one of her eyeballs, is just not there anymore. Uh, oh, <laughs> so gosh. that's really upsetting, generally. 
okay. then like the whole time we, that Rocky and Bullwinkle are moving, they're like creaking and chittering, and it sounds like they're full of insects. It's really scary. <laughs> it sounds so good. Like I am not into like the whole Five Nights horror thing, but that sounds so like priceless, hilarious, and amazing. Because it's it's real. Like it's really <laughs> just that bad, and they're just they're real upsetting, and they're just like <laughs> like really jittery and like creaking, and it's. Every single time, like, it, you know, we were in there for a little while eating dinner. And so every time, like, they'd play the little fanfare, I'd be like, oh, no, Dara. Oh, no. And she's like, no, no, don't bring them back. It's like, no, Dara, they're coming. No. <laughs> so what we've learned from this is I am wholly opposed to body horror. But when it comes to animatronic horror, I'm fully there. 100% there for it. Yeah, it was really... And, oh, man. So they've got, like, this um, video playing... It's, like, this TV playing music videos just constantly uh-huh. and just, like, big hits, like, you know, happy and what have you. Um, and, you know, it just plays and plays and plays until the animatronics show starts. And then that shuts off and they do the animatronics show. But, like, t- when they go back to the music videos... Uh, it just plays, it like starts over the song that had been playing before. Uh, <laughs> so it was like uh, really surreal where it's like we're halfway through uh, Happy and then like Brocky and Bullwinkle do this horrifying bluegrass show and then we just cut back to the beginning of Happy. <laughs> it's just like, oh, <laughs> what's going on in this place? <laughs> you can just feel like the, um, the scissors cutting the... Um film strip of time just happening it was it, it was oddly surreal like it was oh, it was it really really so good uh, and we, we were i want to go there one of those big long tables down because you know we had a, like a party table reserved mm-hmm. so we were like right there like front row seats to this thing it was really bad it was oh. really really bad uh and it's it's so like uh sort of jarring the way it's like you know it's just rocky and bullwinkle up there bullwinkle's got a banjo and rocky's playing some sort of makeshift upright bass uh-huh but then like it's like a disco song is playing <laughs> it's like what is this this is insane and they're just up there like <laughs> it's ugh. it's frightening oh, it's so, oh i want to go there so badly. <laughs> well you gotta go before like, they remodel it you're running oh, out of time. So then on Sunday, next Sunday, we're going. Okay, we'll go. <laughs> we'll go to Bullwinkles and then we'll come home and we'll play some Pathfinder. It'll be great. Or we can play while we're there. We go- oh, God, that would be hell. Oh, no. Right, just like five hours of that on loop. Oh, Jesus. No, thank you. But uh, other than that, I've been kind of home alone this weekend because Will's been working there. The, it was the, it's This weekend is the opening of his uh, production of Three Musketeers, which he is not enjoying. So <laughs> that's too bad. But then Dylan's been uh, house sitting for our dad uh, with his girlfriend. And so we're uh, I'm just like here by myself. But I took the opportunity to sort of wander around the neighborhood. Uh-huh, yeah, I saw your uh, your story. Yeah, on Instagram. Yeah, because I was just like, you know what? Like, it's nice. I mean, it's a little too nice out. Like, today is, like, going to get up to 100 degrees, and I just cannot countenance that. But uh, 
but it's it was you know it's like well sure like let's go out I'm all on my own I need to get some lunch anyway so I just like kind of walked around and it's really nice to just get to know your neighborhood on foot uh it 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 it's I've got a better you know concept of sort of what's around here when I'm not mm-hmm. seeing it from a moving vehicle. Uh, this is nice. And, and what sort of what sort of pizza did you have? It looked like some sort of deconstructed nonsense. No, it was just Bellagio's. <laughs> <laughs> it's just Bellagio's just has a really um a really hardcore veggie pizza. Um, oh, okay. it's really that, good. That's why, it, yeah, it's it, I was like it's so like abstract. Well, I'd eaten half the slice already, oh, okay, so okay. that's why it looked a little weird. <laughs> Um, and it's just really crowded. Um, no, it's, it's good. It's good. like, you know, it's, 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 they step up their game a little bit, um, more than other places. Cause it's got like artichoke hearts on it and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the best thing is after they heat it up, they put some fresh tomatoes on top and that's oh, real nice. good. That's a good move. Well, I remember, um, at Western, my favorite lunch was always the veggie pizza at the pizza place. Yeah. That veggie pizza was pretty good. I didn't like any of their other pizzas, which is weird because normally I love like a meaty pizza, but their veggie pizza was just so refreshing and it wouldn't like hold you down all day. <laughs> pizza can, I, I tell you that uh, as much as I enjoyed that Bellagio's pizza, uh, it was a bit of a mistake because then I had oh, to no. walk home oh, in like in 85 heat. degree weather. Uh-huh. And it was you not, just it, like got a take and bake and just held it out for the sun to cook. Yeah, just leave it in my car. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's really a garlicky pizza too. Uh, so like okay, all yeah. afternoon I was like <laughs> garlic burps like, and I was just like, like, "Oh no. What did I do?" Water. So today I made a much smarter choice. I decided to have an early lunch before we recorded and I went over and got a nice light teriyaki or like teriyaki tofu bowl. From the teriyaki uh-huh. place across the street, and I feel much better than I did yesterday. <laughs> well, good. Well, so I guess we should discuss our topic. Yeah, let's talk about something anybody might care to hear. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, I I came across this really great um, article from the New Statesman that uh, Neil Gaiman tweeted because it's him and the author um, Kazuo Ishiguro uh, just talking about like genre um and it's so interesting uh like i started reading it and immediately i was like yo i need to talk about this because they're sort of discussing among other things the sort of arbitrary nature of genre and Mm -hmm. how um you know to a degree you know they talk about how like genre can be useful when something adheres pretty strictly to the conventions of it so that people can say like i'm looking for that thing here it is i know because this looks like this that i'm getting what i want out of this story um but then in other times things can sort of appear on the surface to belong to a certain genre but then they you know don't adhere to those certain tropes and expectations and um it get the different things happen <laughs> Yeah, and I think one of the things I liked about the article was it was them. It was like a literal conversation. It wasn't like an essay. So I, it wasn't it was, an essay, and it wasn't even an interview. It was just these two guys talking. Yeah, it was a conversation, and it and they were just having like it, there weren't big metaphors you had to unscramble. Like uh-huh. you didn't have to decode anything. They were just like talking about movies and books that have to do with each other. It was it was nice, and 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 since you brought up like. Uh, genre and like adherence to it and it sort of ties into the article um 
when I was in creative writing classes at Western, I remember uh, specifically fiction writing classes. I remember genre was an enemy. Yeah. Which is really gross and really, I don't think healthy. <laughs> way yeah, to look at they, it. Uh, Gaben and Ishiguro have such an interesting, uh, such interesting and refreshing things to say about it. Because on one hand, they're saying like, yeah, there, you know, it, it can be really interesting to sort of defy genre, but there's nothing wrong with genre. Like yeah. it's not it's not a dirty word. It's just like a th- a thing, and you know they they kind of question sometimes the um the validity or the usefulness of like separating things into these categories. But they at no point disparage genre fiction. I mean, they both write, <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> so like Neil Gaiman especially, he's like the king of genre fiction. So mm-hmm. you know they're not going to have anything bad to say about it. Yeah, and I just thought it was really interesting, especially, like, in school, when they're telling us, like, you have to avoid any genre markers, so, like, you can't have a spaceship. You can't, like, you know, that sort of thing. What? Well, like, they wouldn't necessarily say that, but any time there was anything, like, vaguely, uh, is it generic when you're talking about genre in that way? (laughs) I guess so. That would be the t- the word. It just Gen- doesn't Gen- mean what generic? it sounds like. Yeah, no, it would. It's generic? as I recall, it is the term would be generic, but I don't. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's weird. Maybe I'll say generic, generic, generic. But that sounds like it sounds like generic. I know. It's like that sounds like a French guy. <laughs> Bonjour, je suis generic. <laughs> Okay, imagine being a like an English professor with that name. <laughs> Jean-Éric. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, we were we were like slapped on the hand or slapped on the wrist for for including anything like that, and how it was all sort of posed as like genre is a means that is unsuccessful in literature. Oh, boo! And I that, mean, being, I... that being a capital L literature. I mean, I I get on one hand sort of encouraging um, newer writers to, um, because those things can be crutches, certainly. And Mm -hmm. so I I understand encouraging you writers like, hey, try to write something that doesn't depend on something like that and just learn sort of the conventions of good writing first. And then, but like to say, like, just don't do that ever, like... Come on. Yeah, and I, and I think that's probably where it started from. Like, they want it, want you to have this, like, skill um, that doesn't depend on a, on a genre, so you can potentially write in any genre. or mm-hmm. Fundamentals genre. of writing and all that. Yeah, yeah, but it was so strict that it felt like um, it, it, it definitely had, like, that sort of academic taste mm-hmm. of, like, well, that's um... lower or subpar or, like... <sighs> And that's so um, what they're talking about in this conversation. And in fact, they they talk about how that's a pretty new restriction. Like that didn't used to be a concern that people had about literature. You know, um, uh, Gaiman talks about when Dickens published A Christmas Carol. Nobody was like, oh, this is this here. Ah, oh, this respectable social novelist has suddenly become a fantasy novelist. Look, there are ghosts and magic. They're like, no, nobody cared. Dickens just wrote a book that had ghosts in it. Like, it wasn't a thing. It's just like a more recent... Honestly, they they argue um, it, it's more of an industrial 
thing. It's like it's it's for the purposes of publishing. It's not really anything to do with like good writing. It's just about how to sell writing. Yeah, it's it's all it's all the marketing, which I think is really interesting, especially when we look at how genre is marketed today versus like how it like so so basically the literary world sees genre as like pulp. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you think about like pulp books, like they they were regarded as lower or low class so it's interesting how like pulp books were sort of thought of as low class and then now we're sort of starting to see genre in that same sort of way yeah like the reasons for them are so different I feel like yeah, it is kind of curious. Well, and, and another interesting sort of dimension of that that they talk about is how um, genre is much more disparaged in literature than it is in filmmaking. Uh, the yeah. way, you know, certain, like, really classic films, you know, things that are thought of very, very highly within cinema um, are very much genre. Like, um, they bring up 2001 A Space Odyssey. Like, that's science fiction, um, yeah. But it's one of the, you know, purported to be one of the greatest films ever made. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as the whole, like, pulp thing, um, I mean, and pulp is so broad, too. Like, there's so many different kinds of, like, old school pulp. Um, yeah. A lot of it was just, you know, thought less of because it was, like, I mean, and not, again, to disparage, but kind of trashy. Like, it was very violent and, like sexual and like just sort of um titillating you know it well, was just and, and there the to... materials used were lower quality paper and you know they were yeah really that's why it's called pulp materials. yeah exactly it was the mushy gross stuff left over <laughs> yeah and it was you know it was cheap you know that they were maybe not as um well educated of writers you know people just sort of yeah. banging out books um well and they sort of they sort of talk about not necessarily in in the context of pulp, but when they're talking about um, fantasy in the article, they're talking about Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings and how once that sort of started getting really, 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 really popular, the publishing houses were like, "We need more of this." Then they're just churning it out. Yeah. Then yeah. they just started, you know, paying anyone big bucks for a similar story. And yeah, and so maybe I mean that it's like sort of an associative thing where it's like. Uh, there there was sort of a flood of maybe less you know lower quality writing shall we say yeah. within mm-hmm. the genre and so it sort of tainted the reputation of the whole genre when it all started with Tolkien like you know yeah. Yeah, a very yeah. well respected writer and mm-hmm. a very well educated writer <laughs> um mm-hmm. not again to say I, I i just qualifications galore here not to say that you have to have like a lot of education to be a good writer you don't but Tolkien happened to have a lot of education and be an educator himself so yeah. <laughs> you know well, that's and, maybe and, and spent his whole life <laughs> yeah he was it. a scholar um and, and so whereas, you that... know you can't find one book that took taken a whole lifetime to produce mm-hmm. and make 30 different versions of them for 30 different people because there's not that many different people that work that hard on it yeah um there's this great phrase that comes up um at one point i'm trying to find it here because it was just it's like i feel like it's a very useful (laughs) term for us when we're talking especially when we're talking about these concepts of like guilty pleasures and stuff i think uh i think 
Ishiguro calls it um, the imagination police. <laughs> uh, yeah. The idea of these people who are like, no, you can't do that because it's childish or, you know, lesser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just liked that phrase a lot. Well, yeah, especially like, like, why can't something that is a, like high art, quote unquote, um, have something that's childish? You know? I yeah. Know. <laughs> I mean, like, no like, reason. Like, we, we, I've talked about it a lot lately and I've been forcing you to watch it, but like, The Last Airbender, like, mm-hmm. it relies so heavily on that s- sense of wonder, but it uses that to sort of build up these really intense, heavier themes that ultimately make it one of, like, at least from my perspective, one of the most successful, um, not monetarily wise, but like at, at doing what it was meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, piece of animated television, at least in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting to sort of talk about, uh, you know, to bring up the concept of like Western versus Eastern genre. Um, cause uh, frankly, I don't really know, like culturally in, in the East, what the attitudes are on that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it's like, do, you know, do they have those same kinds of ideas about like, oh, this is fantasy. This is for children. Um, um I don't know or pretend to really know, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. from what I can assume, is I and from what I've just seen of clips and and whatnot, um, I think that their sort of comic world of manga and our sort of superhero comic world have had similar receptions. Um, they were sort mm-hmm. of cult and pulp back in the day, and then now it's like mainstream. But again, yeah, I'm completely I w- assuming. <laughs> Yeah, I would be really curious. I'm really curious to find that out. Because um, I yeah, I know that they have sort of just culturally different ideas. You bring up comics, you know, about like, who comics are for. And yeah. I think they're a little bit more open to like, yeah, adults read comics too, um, at least in Japan. But uh, I don't know about like the genres that are sort of respectable to be reading. Yeah. Um, but... It, uh yeah I've, i found that bit where um he's talking about imagination police and mm-hmm. he's talking about sort of the idea of it interacting with um class snobbery mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. which is very much i think the impulse behind um like your class that was saying your your writing class that was saying like don't write these things it's yeah. like it's it's thought of as being sort of a less um exactly yeah valid sort of for 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 lesser imaginations you know yeah well <laughs> um, and, and and i think the 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 term imagination police is perfect because if you think about all the other sort of things that class or people of higher class or, or people pretending to have higher class um will sort of start policing in their in their peers like mm-hmm. you think of language if somebody's not using the proper the quote-unquote proper grammar, somebody's going to point it out and make a big deal out of it and seem like a snob. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, or well, uh, or, it, or there's a lot of similar things to that. 
Yeah, I uh, I do. I I was sort of I didn't kind of expect them to go in this direction, but he um, Ishiguro talks about uh, during that sort of um, bit where he's talking about the Imagination Police. He talks about how you know he doesn't the way that sort of letting go of genre tends to be a part of like growing into an adult. Oh yeah. Um. And, you know, and he's like, I don't think this is some kind of, like, specific conspiracy, but culturally, we sort of have been brought up to believe that when you become an adult, you let go of fantastical things and you sort of accept the mundane Mm -hmm. reality of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no room within sort of an industrial society for adults who, like, have wonder. (laughs) Yeah. Well, because it's not productive. Yes, exactly. Uh, but then, um, yeah, this bit, I just have to read it because I, it's a fascinating concept. Uh, maybe the reason it's been loosening up and the stigma is going away to some extent in the last 25 years or so is that the nature of our capitalist enterprise has changed. We're no longer factory workers, white collar workers, soldiers, and so on. And with the advent of blue sky thinking, the new tech industries that have led the way in the last two decades seem to require some kind of imagination. So it's like maybe the reason why culturally we're more accepting these days of genre fiction is just because now it seems more productive to like have an imagination. Yeah, it's more use- <laughs> it's more useful to the current needs. Yeah, which is like kind of well, gross. And it also, it's super <laughs> gross, but it also makes me think of how you know pulp and and comics sort of were this like cheap form of entertainment, either. Uh, materials wise or also how they were viewed um and then now comic book movies are like the most expensive movies to produce but also the most successful movies right and, and, uh gaiman talks about, yeah, go ahead gaiman talks about how um he went to the very first um state-sponsored party-approved science fiction convention in china uh-huh. in 2007 mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, this is weird because like, you know, their government has sort of been um, down on genre, you know, science fiction and stuff because it's, it can be very subversive. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's very metaphorical and you can say things without saying them and, you know, it's dangerous. Um, but so he was like, yeah, well, like, like, why are you guys okay with this now? Like what changed? And they said that they, you know, China historically has been a culture of, invention but they weren't inventing things anymore they there wasn't any kind of innovation happening industrially and they you know realized that like the innovators in america were imagination people Mm -hmm. and so they're like okay we need to be we need to allow imagination now if we want to be innovators Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is like uh, (laughs) yeah it's really like slimy you know well it makes me think of um uh oh gosh i'm blanking on the the name of it it was last yeah last year the year before it was um octavia spencer and with and they were um the nasa the black women who were nasa's um mathematicians. oh hidden figures thank you hidden figures um there's a scene in that where i i'm blanking on her her name but the main character basically like takes this old formula and applies it to this new situation and none of them had thought of it before. Mm-hmm. So it, it's like that imagination doesn't necessarily have to be like, 
orcs and elves. It can also <laughs> right. be like, oh, what could that story that I heard about those orcs and elves, how could it help me solve this problem? Sure. It's, you know, genre can help us um, explore other kinds of perspectives in maybe a more um, comfortable way. Well, and I'm also thinking now, you know, you can use that imagination to either adhere to that genre or adhere to that thinking, and that might help you. Or you can use what you've learned from that genre, as I think both of the, the writers in this inter- this conversation have done, to break down those boundaries and make something new. Right, yeah. I mean, they, they, they spent a lot of time talking about Ishiguro's newest novel, uh, The Buried Giant, and how, you know, he was kind of like, I mean, I wasn't really setting out to, like, participate in the fantasy genre. I was just, I just needed some magical creatures in my story. Like, and the same way he talks about, uh, uh, what is it, Never Let Me Go. And uh, we have to how, talk about Never Let Me Go. <laughs> <laughs> how he's like, I just, you know, it, it had to be a science fiction story because it was the only way to achieve this idea that I wanted to achieve. You know? and, funnily, and funnily enough, it was the only way to make that idea plausible, even yeah. though it's science fiction. <laughs> yeah, I was like, how can this, how can I set up this scenario? I, I have, it's got to be clones. So. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I, I absolutely love, I haven't read the book, but I love the movie. Um, and it's definitely one I would recommend to, to listeners. And it's so... I can definitely see why it applies to this sort of like breaking the genre because you don't know other than the time period, you're not aware that it's science fiction. Um, it, it really much at all. It's, it's very, um, painted with a very light hand. Mm -hmm. There's, there's only a couple little eerie, like foreshadowings of it actually. Right. And it's almost, yeah, yeah, that, that's all I think of. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so one um, th- thought that kind of came up in the, in the conversation um, that I found was really interesting was they were talking about the way that certain things will sort of defy the genre that at first glance it would appear to be and like how that can, you know, sort of let people down um even though you know it really shouldn't like the story is just what it is but people were sort of given reason to believe because of genre convention that they should expect certain things from the story that weren't present in the story mm-hmm. um you know they talk about how in a western like if something's a western you can expect a saloon fight you can expect a you know a showdown in the street like there are certain beats that have come to be sort of standards. Mm-hmm. And when somebody is looking for that and then they pick something up that they expect has it and it doesn't, it can like create a dissonance. Mm-hmm. And I'm really fascinated by this idea of like things that are, that seem to have not succeeded when really you were just expecting them to do something they weren't trying to do in the first place. Uh, this might be a hot take, but perhaps The Last Jedi. <laughs> maybe so maybe so i don't know it didn't, it didn't go according to plan for a lot of viewers and thus they were upset <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and I think that's a whole, there's an oh, additional yeah. can of worms there's, in there's, that. There's other things going on, but that's just, and that's what it made me think of, you know. Right. Well, the thing that it actually made me think of was um, Crimson Peak, Guillermo del Toro's film Crimson Peak, because I happen to love that film, and I think it's good. I mean, it's got the sort of common problems that del Toro films can have, but overall, I really enjoyed it, but a lot of people found it very disappointing because they had expected a horror film, and it was marketed as a horror film, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't one, and it never wanted to be one, and in fact, del Toro, within the fiction comments on this when um you know she's taking her book to the publisher and she's like what do you think and he's like well i mean it's a ghost story and she's like well no it's not it's not a ghost story it's a story with a ghost in it like there's a difference and that's what crimson peak is it's not a ghost story it's not a horror story it's just a story that has ghosts and horrific things in it but it's about something else and it's not trying to be that thing that it isn't well and i think guillermo is a per- the perfect person to bring up in the whole conversation because you look mm-hmm. at the majority of his films and i'd say they're a little more like they're a little like half and half they're very like half right. genre and half uh non generic generic um but so, so like you think of Pan's Labyrinth, you're like, it's kind of horror, but it's not a horror. It's just terrible people. And then it's also a historical And some piece, scary stuff. And it's also a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, but the fantasy isn't necessarily real. It might just be imagined. Yeah, I, I think that he's made, uh, you know, he's, he's, I think, striven in his career a lot of the time to do that genre defying i mean look at the shape of water yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like he's he's like flagrantly defying genres like uh, like super on purpose <laughs> so yeah. whereas i think in crimson peak it was just subtle enough that um like the marketers didn't know what to do with it and they did it wrong and then a lot of people didn't enjoy the film because they thought it they thought it screwed up when it just wasn't ever trying to do the thing they expected do you remember that first trailer for the shape of water because they did going back to marketing they did an excellent job of marketing marketing it as like the sort of film that defies in a lot of ways and that it also could be sort of this highbrow award-winning movie when if they had just cut the trailer differently it could have been a weird monster movie slash monster romance you know yeah like monster erotica exactly yeah. <laughs> like honestly like if, if you if you take a step back especially that whole, I, honestly take a step back from that whole year in filmmaking and you'll be like <laughs> what was going on how did that win film of the year it's so like cheesy in a lot of ways and like mm-hmm. but but that's i think all of those moving parts together in the right time period going to the right judges mm-hmm. and then getting it like we're all in on the joke yeah. can you think of anything else um you know films books video games whatever that like struggled like may have struggled or at very least just sort of like ended up being a thing that that they didn't 
that didn't look like it was you know what i'm saying like yeah, yeah. like with crimson peak or something where it's like oh like this isn't actually in the genre that i thought it would be in at all i'm sure i could think of a million examples i wish i would have thought of that and like <laughs> done a little bit of yeah. research on my movie shelf <laughs> yeah i've been sort of mulling it over oh, um actually example, dylan actually. Um, oh yeah so Allie, again, friend of the show, guest, um, she has a lot of influence on my on my movie tastes. We watched a lot of movies in college. And one of her favorite movies that is now one of my favorite movies is called The Fall. Um, oh, God, I have still have not seen The Fall. Oh I need God. to see that movie. We need to, like, get a hold of it and watch it together because it's so... So basically, I'll give you a, a synopsis and I will not spoil anything because everyone deserves to not have this movie spoiled. It doesn't have, like, a big twist or anything, really. But it's just so like consistently surprising and beautiful. Anyway, um, so it starts off as this like period piece, and then it goes to one of those movies where it's like a story within a story. Like mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think of the well, yeah, it's like about a man in a hospital telling a little girl a story. Yeah, it's right? exactly like that one. I, I always get Little Women and Little Princess mixed up. I think it's Little Princess. Little Princess, yes. Yes, where she's learning that story of the Maharaja or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very that in, 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 in both like how it's sort of um, shown to the viewer and then also sort of theme wise, it has some similar stuff. Um, also, I loved that movie when I was little. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's just so it like twists and turns it, 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 like, again, like going from period piece to, straight up wild fantasy to back to period piece and then back to like historical uh, it it's just a really good example of if you just look at the box art you're like what the hell is this about <laughs> oh, it looks like an absolutely beautiful film oh it's stunning and dark and heart-wrenching but again if you if you like I, I, I didn't see any of the marketing stuff for it because it came out under the radar and I watched it after the fact, but mm-hmm. I can imagine it being a really tough movie to sell because right. you can't just like show a couple clips from throughout the movie because, you know, a scene in a hospital in the, in the, the thirties doesn't match up to a scene in the desert where there's a tree that's on fire. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no connection. You can't sell that. Like, what is this? Yeah. And and it's possible that, you know, these days now, you know, because that, that, that movie's a, a, a kind of older now, right? It came out in, like, the yeah. early 2000s. I think so, earlier. So, like, yeah. as, yeah. So, like, I think that even just now, you know, around 15 years on or something, like, just in that time, I think we've become a lot more receptive to, like, bizarre genre bending sort of films, and I think that it might be easier to market now than it oh, yeah. probably was at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. But it's, and it's also got Lee Pace, and I just oh. really like Lee Pace. He, okay. <laughs> I, I do really like him as well, um, but his performance in this movie is so astounding. Like, I would really? better than anything else I've seen him in. Um, oh wow! Yeah, because because again, even he, better than the Hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> better than the one emotion he showed in that whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, I love Thrandwill. Oh no, <laughs> everybody loves Thrandwill. Um, <laughs> but he has to 
because I, I talked about how the visual language has to jump between the 30s and this mystical desert. He has to act in those two places. Right. As two completely different characters. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it looks beautiful and I want to see it for sure. Oh, I, I just uh, want to watch it. I don't own it though. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Um, one that uh, actually Dylan um, suggested to me to, to leave the realm of cinema for a moment because it's Dylan. So you, uh, so you know, it's video games. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, did you ever play Gone Home? Uh, it, uh, yeah, I think so. It's just the one where you're in the house alone, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of marketed as a horror game. And it oh, kind of complete. felt like it was going to be a horror game. The whole time you're like on edge and it's so scary. But then nothing scary actually happens. Nothing bad happens. And in the end, it's actually like a really beautiful, heartwarming character portrait. Yeah. With just <laughs> scary lightning and creaking doors. <laughs> yeah. And it, so it's like it, 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 it sort of uses these hallmarks of a horror game in order to make you feel certain emotions yeah but it it's never actually nothing bad happens like nothing bad ever happens in the game yeah like you know it's 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 learning the story of this girl the character's sister um and so like at times when you're you know things are being revealed about her that are really tragic or frightening you know, scary stuff is happening in the house, mm-hmm. but it's not like there's any threat. It's just like making you feel upset because you're learning upsetting things. Mm-hmm. It's And it's such a cool twist on that. I think so. Um, there's been a lot of press around it, and I think I might have talked about it uh, in the last episode or not. But um, Hannah Gadsby, the comedian, she just had a Netflix special come out called Nanette. And... Mm-hmm. And, you know, talking about genre, it's not a comedy special. It's not. It breaks comedy specials apart. It dissects <laughs> them and it destroys them and it turns into a lecture. It turns into a perform like a performance arts piece. Um, but basically in it, she talks about um, defying the, the traditional comedic sort of joke and, and she breaks it down into, I am controlling your tension. I am building the tension up by setting up this joke. I am releasing the tension with the punchline. That's exactly what Gone Home hmm. does. It builds up yeah. the tension with the spooky atmosphere, with things flickering, with with doors creaking open. But then you get this, re- this release of this like beautiful or tragic, honest truth about a character and then it releases the tension again, and you're like, okay, I don't feel as scared. I can keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, Gone Home's really good. I'd kind of forgotten about it, because it's been a few years since I played Didn't it, but it's really lovely. Come out? Where we... Not that I'm aware of. I, I think there's a, a spinoff or something. I don't know. I, I, huh. I am only vaguely listening to all video game news at once. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I still have yet to watch Nanette, but um, did you ever watch Bo Burnham's special Make Happy? I probably I've seen uh, some of his stuff, you know, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. Because that one just kind of like I, I I can't say whether it's similar or not to Nanette because I have not yet watched it. But Make Happy is is he's it, it starts out you know it's a it's a Bo Burnham comedy show, but he, the whole it's the sort of thesis of the show is like 
we're all performing all the time and it's kind of horrible, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But I can't ever stop and you can't either. Like, (laughs) you know, he, um, he, he talks, I'm trying to like even articulate what's going on in it. Um, it is sort of about the artifice of performance and the artifice of comedy and how, um, you know, how kind of hollow it can be. Mm-hmm. And it's just this bizarre trip through this guy's like personal struggles with being a performer and the ethics of performance. Mm-hmm. It's so good. And yeah, it, it's like, in the end, it kind of devolves into like a mental breakdown that mm-hmm. he's kind of having for real. It's, it's really um, astounding to watch. Um, because, you know, the whole sort of, like I'll just tell you like his sign off at the end of it um because he's talking about like I'm up here to make you happy regardless of whether or not I'm happy and like this is what I need to do and this is my job and it like just turns into this whole crazy thing and then uh at the very end like after this big crazy crescendo he just says into the microphone "Uh, that's my show I hope you're happy and he drops the microphone and walks away and it's like oh my god Mm -hmm. I hope you're happy like Oof, that's a lot. Uh, it's a very, very good special. I well, definitely I think recommend. Nanette just sort of expands upon that, and it, and it yeah, and she stops trying. In in that sort of mm-hmm. way, she stops trying to make you happy. She's she she. By the end, you can see that her mission was to tell her story and to try mm-hmm. and convince you it's it's very much a lecture and it's there's so many rhetorical strategies going on um and the joke becomes no longer just entertainment it becomes um a rhetorical strategy Hmm. for for convincing somebody of something yeah that's so interesting i really need to watch this because it sounds yeah it kind of sounds like maybe she's got like a point to make beyond like i don't know if I can believe in this thing. Like, with Bo Burnham, it's it's very um, fatalistic, I'll, I'd say, where he's just kind of like, this is what I'm doing because this is what I know how to do and this is what you all want me to be doing, but I can't reconcile it. Like, I cannot reconcile what I'm doing with my beliefs. Like, I don't deserve to be doing this. I don't deserve the money and the attention that I get for doing this. But it's what you want and it's what I want. So we're just going to keep doing it. <laughs> and there's a... There's very, a, very tragic. There's some of that too in Nanette where she multiple times she says, this is my last um, comedy show. And I mm-hmm. don't think she means that literally. I think she means that because she has figured out a way to use comedy and again it's no longer in that genre anymore she has right. made something i i don't want to say it's its own new thing because i it, it, i don't think it necessarily is but it's just a multitude of different things so it has become a different thing so she's not doing a comedy special anymore she's not telling jokes anymore she's she has a whole mission besides just laughter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds a lot more sort of um, thoughtful. I mean, not to call Bo Burnham not thoughtful. <laughs> I like what he does, and I'm a big fan. Um, but it, it sounds like she's sort of striving to move beyond the sort of struggle of um, 
being an ethical performer. Well, yeah, because she doesn't want to. She she used her she used to use her own pain. For her comedy. And that's very much what Bo Burnham still yeah, does. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of people do. Um, because mm-hmm. it's it's easy. And because you don't have to um, pick on anybody else. But nobody right. wins in that situation. So. Yeah. It, Hannah Gadsby actually picks on a lot of people during the new show. She picks on, especially <laughs> like... Um, cis straight men cis straight white men she like calls them out Uh multiple times but then she has them cackling because it's you know because she knows how to control their (laughs) tension she's like making them by calling them out and then she makes everybody around them just start laughing and then they're like oh okay it's a joke i can laugh too Uh uh-huh uh, it's funny because Bo Burnham actually has a song in the special called Straight White Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so great. It's this very funny, ironic song about how hard it is to be a straight white man. Yeah, I've probably seen it in a clip or I might have actually seen the special. It sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, straight white man, you know the road is tough ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very funny. Um, I mean, that's, you know. That's the best person to make fun of is the straight white man. So, <laughs> um, so I like how we went from this highbrow conversation about genre to breaking genre through comedy. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's all one, man. Yeah. Like that's what that's the conversation, you know. Because the you know Gaiman and Ishiguro are talking about you know these how these genres are useful for telling certain kinds of stories and there's absolutely valuable stories to tell there um and you know voices to be heard there and so you know people can use these genres the way that 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 you know they do in in nanette and make happy to say like i have something to say and this is the best way to tell you it yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. exactly you know, like if Bo Burnham just sat there and told you about how he struggles as a performer because he doesn't feel like he deserves the attention and how, you know, unethical it is for him to spend these vast amounts of money on these shows when he could be donating it to charity or yeah, something. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's true, but like nobody wants to hear him just sit there and talk about it. So he tells you about it through his mm-hmm. medium. Yep. It's great. It's really great. I like it. <laughs> well, um, it kind of feels like we've reached a good um, stopping yeah. point. Do you have any recommendations this week? Uh, I don't know. What have I been even doing all week? <laughs> <laughs> working. So much working. Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm recommending Pose again because um, this most recent... There's a new one on tonight, but the last week's um, episode um, was the first episode of television that was uh, directed by a trans woman of color, um, Janet Mock, mm-hmm. the, the writer and now director, um, directed Ooh. the episode, and it was really, really, really good. It was, it's really um, hard, um, but it's also really good. Um, and then also they just got renewed for a second season, which is like so such good news especially like for a brand new show that 
I know I'm talking the hell out of, but I don't know how, like, you know, everybody at large is talking about it, you know? Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll confess I have not um, checked it out, but it does seem really cool. Well, it's hard, especially for our generation, when most of us only have Netflix or Hulu or a, a streaming service because we can't afford cable. Right? It just doesn't make so, any sense. <laughs> exactly. So that's why it's really difficult to stay up to date on shows. So they sort of explode and have a second life when they go to streaming, but by that time it might be too late to save them. Right. So it's sort of this like so sad, like really short life, like a butterfly where it's like, <laughs> it's just doing its uh, due diligence on, you know, network television and then it cocoons for a year or so. Then all of a sudden it's all, all the seasons are on Netflix and it just blooms, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, cool. Uh, I mean, that that's kind of a downer way to talk about it, but your recommendation is Pose. (laughs) (laughs) Uplifting it all, Pose, I'm sure will go to Netflix very quickly because all of the Ryan Murphy shows go there pretty quickly. I know American Horror Story, the the previous season goes up as soon as the new season starts. Right. Well, cool. Then, yeah, if if you've got if you've got access to regular television, check it out of there. Um, if not, just hold tight. I'm sure you get to see it soon. And and I don't I don't pay for cable. Just so everybody knows, I I use my parents. <laughs> <laughs> Paying for stuff. Uh, well, cool. Um, my recommendation is this great um YouTube channel called Nyx Fears N Y X Fears. Um, it's this, uh, film review, um, actually the, the host of the, the channel, um, May, she recently was on an episode of Deep Dive on FilmJoy, um, and which was what reminded me of her, because I'd seen some of her stuff previously, um, and then I, she just sort of slipped out of my mind, and then I saw her on Deep Dive, and I was like, oh yeah, she does really good stuff, I should go back, and I've been just avidly watching through her channel, Um, she does film review mostly about horror films, um, and she's super duper funny, um, and she's actually, uh, a trans woman, um, so if you go back and watch some of her, uh, most of her older videos, they, um, were made before she transitioned, um, Mm -hmm. but she, uh, I'm just, uh, as a, as a footnote, I'm really happy for her, her, I follow her on Twitter, and she just recently started, um, hormone replacement therapy and she's super happy and super excited and it's so wonderful to see this happen for her um she's just a delight she's really really funny and smart um and she just loves horror films um (laughs) and (laughs) i i love um in sort of her her longer form videos because she she'll do just like short little like vlog type Uh, videos just reviewing a movie she just saw or something and she's quite funny in those but in her longer sort of discussion videos she's got this sidekick (laughs) that's one of those like animatronic talking halloween skeletons where you like talk into a voice changer and the jaw moves and so it's like talking and so she uses him as like sort of a like a a device for discussion where like she'll say Mm -hmm. something and then the skeleton will be like wait what do you even mean and then she's like oh okay and like so they have this sort of back and forth dialogue with her and this skeleton and it's really cute uh super duper funny 
I I really recommend it. Like, even if you like haven't seen the films that she's talking about, like she just does a really good job of sort of film criticism and breaking down the horror genre. Mm -hmm. Um, She has, I'd say my favorite video of hers is her uh, explanation of the film Eraserhead uh, by David Lynch. Um, It's one of her favorite films of all time. And it's one that is notoriously hard to watch and understand Mm -hmm. um, because it's just, a David Lynch trip. Um, and it was actually a collaboration with this other YouTube channel, Nightmind, um, and who also does like horror film uh, analysis and stuff. Um, and it, it's just, it's just a really great and smart video. They're also entertaining, but it, like I watched it and then I was like, oh, okay, now I understand Eraserhead, which is insane <laughs> to say, because nobody understands Eraserhead. <laughs> So yeah, um, she's a delight and, and a very uh, cool person. Um, so definitely give her some some v- views on her on her YouTube. That does it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and burr, 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 now on Spotify. Woo! So we're everywhere. You cannot escape us. You have no excuse not to be listening. <laughs> no excuses. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, while you're at it, please rate and subscribe us wherever you listen. Uh, we really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference in people being able to find our show. I guess you should leave a review too. I don't know. I guess that's important, but we have reviews. Anything you want to throw our way, it all it all helps. Hate mail. <laughs> I mean, if you must, I prefer not. I mean, I mean but... like hate, hate, hate men. Male. I don't know. <laughs> that can be cut for time. <laughs> Check us out on Twitter at LitMeritPod for updates and news. And thanks to Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song Fraud from his album Artificial Heart. Until next time, remember, in a funny voice, no, no guilty, guilty pleasures. pleasures.